for entertainment, education, and information purposes only. And the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. For more, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity aside from possibly cash back more hospital and affiliate outreach programs. If indeed there are any, in fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you're wrong. You should always do your own homework and let us know the word. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. This is Dr. Matthew Watto, and I am going to try to get through this intro without my normal co-hosts, Stuart and Paul. This is an internal medicine podcast where normally we use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. On this episode, though, we will be focusing on health policy. This episode is co-sponsored by the American College of Physicians and ACP members can get free CME and mock credit by going to acponline.org forward slash curbsiders to redeem their CME and mock credit. Our two guests for this episode are Dr. Fatima Syed, who will be joining us hopefully for several more of these health policy episodes. She has a master's in comparative social policy from the University of Oxford and is an expert on health policy and advocacy. And joining us tonight is her friend, Dr. Deep Shaw. Deep went to Harvard Medical School, did an internal medicine residency at Emory, and is currently working as a primary care physician and also managing a medium-sized, independent, multi-specialty practice in the metro area in Atlanta. He has extensive training in both population health and health policy and also has a master's in comparative social policy from the University of Oxford. So as you can tell, I am in good company tonight to bring you this wonderful podcast and discussion on health policy with Dr. Fatima Syed and Dr. Deep Shah. Fatima, uh, thank you for coming back on the show. Happy to be here. And uh, and deep, this is your first time on the show. We are thrilled to have you, and I think the audience is gonna is gonna love this one. Well, I'm grateful for the opportunity to be with uh, some all star internists and powwow here on a Thursday, a Wednesday night. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> as that's a sign of an internist when uh, you're not sure what day of the week it is because it doesn't really matter. <laughs> all the same. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's uh, let's. Uh, Fatima, it's been a while since you've been on the show, so why don't you give your 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 one-liner so the audience can kind of remember who you are? Sure, absolutely. So uh, I am a 31-year-old, recently completed my training in endocrine and did a primary care residency, about to start my first real job with a pretty extensive experience in health policy and advocacy. Uh, having been the chair of the Council of uh, re- uh, Resident and Fellow Members on American College of Physicians, as well as a member of the Health uh, Public Policy Committee on ACP as well. Yes, and that's why we keep bringing you back, because you have such such great experience. And Get rid of me. Yeah, we can't. <laughs> we, don't, we don't want to. <laughs> and Deep, uh, what would be a one-liner that you would use to describe yourself? I'm a former assistant of Fatima uh, at the American <laughs> College of Physicians Council of Resident <laughs> Fellows. Uh, I'm a practicing internist in the metro Atlanta area. I also help run a multi-specialty group. We have about almost 20 clinics in the metro area with a big team of primary care 
docs, nurse practitioners, and specialists. And I try to balance those two along with being somewhat of a newlywed. Got married last year, so my wife's in residency. Uh, I'm also the primary uh, chef and maid at the house for this month. She's on night float. Well, that seems appropriate. I mean, residency is a tough time. <laughs> Although what you were telling I me mean, about your day-to-day, it's, it, seems, it seems pretty tough uh, with your current job as well. Well, it's a lot of fun, so I can't complain. Well, Fatima, are there any questions that you always wanted to ask Deep that you can, now that we have him on the hot seat here, that, that we can ask him now? Um, yeah. Should we do some more get-to-know-you questions with him? Yeah, let's, let's do it. Okay, Deep. What is a book that you think a physician should read and should not read? Any, any recommendations? Absolutely. Every current, future, past physician should read When Breath Becomes Air mm-hmm. because I can't imagine what it must feel like to know what's happening inside your body, but it be out of your control. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Asian, Indian, South Asian in me says that Everybody should read another book is uh, a financial book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, which I was told to read. And uh, I don't have everything. Everything should be read. I can't say anything you shouldn't read, except maybe some of the prior Netscape compensation surveys before you've done your rotations. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) I like that. That's a very, that's a good answer to what what you shouldn't read. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Go in without the bias there. Um, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Th- and that's, correct me if I'm, I haven't read that one, but I heard it's not strictly a financial book. It's it's more, it, isn't there some philosophy of how to live your life type stuff in there too? Yeah, I think it's just about building. I haven't read it in several years, but it drives home the point about how you build a home that has assets that you value, whatever those are. And I think in our current culture of so much waste, uh, there's a lot to be said about what we do value and um, how to keep what you've earned. Very cool. Yeah, at some point, at some point, I'll probably read that. I I think I've read a couple books in similar in a similar vein. Um, but let's move on. Another question: What is a favorite failure of yours, or or just a failure that you feel like really helped you grow or helped you learn in some way? This is only a 40-minute podcast, right? <laughs> An hour long or so. <laughs> we can turn it into the, the whole show. We could do a separate show on failure if, if you've got a lot to unload. Free therapy session for the guest. Let's huh? see where this goes. <laughs> well, I think there are so many ups and downs in training, which um, I'm sure a lot of our audience is looking forward to as they approach medical school and residency. And, and those of us who have been in it look back fondly now and remember with some nostalgia, but In my current role, I'm really running a business, and there are so many highs and lows on a day-to-day with what you can do for your community, the patients you serve, and your staff as well. And I think there have been several setbacks that we faced uh, in in the past two years as I've been at the company, and I'll maybe touch on just one of those quickly, which is... I worked really hard to implement a light EMR system across the entire network that I thought would be light enough for some of our senior doctors to adopt, and they just were not able to do it. It was still too much for them, and that was a lot of hard work and effort. Uh, We've come up with some solutions since that time, but 
after putting so much time and effort into something, you want it to be a hundred percent success. And I think one of the lessons I learned is you don't have to go from zero to a hundred for something to be a success going from zero to 50 or 75% is still enough for you to be part of yourself and recognize that your effort was worth it. Yeah. Wow. I'm, I'm just impressed that you're, you're, you are in a practice like more of a, would you consider it a private practice? Because there's just so much, at least in the area where I am, it's, it's such a rare thing to, for people to be out on their own and not part of a large hospital system. So it just, we're truly independent community or private practice, whichever you want to call it. I think mm-hmm. uh, when you're a med student or a pre-med, you hear private practice and you think that means rich because private means rich, but uh, it's a community practice, which means we serve the community. Uh, but okay. yes, we are private and independent. Okay. Yeah. I wasn't implying rich by the private practice thing. That wasn't, uh, <laughs> I didn't get I'm that. I'm clarifying for our naive listeners <laughs> who may not yet have been jaded. Okay. Before we move on to the main topic at hand, I wanted to ask, Fatima, I'll go to you first. Did you have any sort of pick of the week? You've been on the show before, so I won't ask you all these getting to know you questions, but did you have something that you wanted to recommend to the audience? Absolutely. So I I, there's, I was actually trying to find the exact title of the piece right now, um, but on Annals had an on being do- a doctor piece um, recently about a female physician's experience with a patient um, where she was, um, violated by that patient. And, um, it's a really important piece, I think, to understand sort of the perspective of what it means to be a female physician and what you deal with. And that person Annals released, um, was about uh, a certain director at, uh, um, uh, head of this, of, of, a pretty important news station. So I would definitely recommend uh, reading that piece. It's from a couple months ago. I will find it to you, Matt, so that we can post it up for people. Yikes. That sounds, that sounds a little heavier than my normal reading, but uh, that's, I, it just seems so timely um, with things that have just been in like the, the lay press, even with the uh, Me Too stuff. Um, Absolutely. Plug for the Women in Medicine podcast that Curbsiders is doing, um, which is helping to address some of these issues as well. Yes, I think I think harassment and uh, I I don't want to speak for for the people running that show, but I think uh, Shreya and Leah have mentioned that uh, that might be uh, a topic of a future show. Um, I'm going to skip I'm going to skip a pick of the week, and I think we should we should move into the main topic here. So. Fatima, I'll let I'll let you kind of set us up here. And what what's the first area you wanted to start to talk about with with Deep here? What what question do you think we should start with? Yeah, Deep, kind of with your experience with being a new primary care physician, or at least it's in the long career that you're going to have. You're a couple years in. Can you talk to us a little bit about what you sort of your perception of what administrative burdens meant? If it's something you had heard before you. Um, graduated from residency and what it means to you now as a practicing primary care doctor? Sure. Well, I think uh, that it's a great question and so relevant for people who are trying to figure out where they want to go in medicine and how they want to spend their time as they finally have the opportunity to take care of patients, which is what you spend so many years training to do. I had a little more insight than probably the average med student 
did because I was involved with ACP to some degree, and I came from a family of physicians and had been able to see over time how my mom, who's a family practitioner, her time had sort of shifted from purely focusing on patient care to spending a lot more time thinking and, and talking about at home. Uh, two things specifically. One was the documentation, and two was the billing and coding. I used to be on one of the ACP committees that addressed this, uh, MPQC, which is a medical practice and quality committee. And they did some really uh, important and meaningful work as we sort of tried to figure out from an objective perspective, what are the drivers of these burdens and, and why are people getting burnt out and not enjoying their day-to-day work as much as, as, much as they could? Uh, why is that experience not optimal? And there's a great piece that was published, um, which I'm sure has been off-referenced uh, in, on this podcast, the Putting Patients First by Reducing, I think it's Reducing Administrative Tasks in Healthcare. And it was initially published in Annals. And I think it really elegantly outlines what is so time-consuming. And then I'll quickly transition to, in real life, what it's been like. Everyone said there's three big things. Uh, One was more and more complicated coding. And second, the documentation required for coding uh, is becoming more and more complex. And then the third is that the notes themselves are full of useless information. We call it note bloat. And just to clarify a little bit about what I mean when I say coding, when you code a visit, it's how you're billing it to the insurance company and also communicating it to other actors in healthcare about what you did during that encounter. And I thought that as someone who grew up in a very tech-savvy generation, I would be able to navigate it with um, greater facility than perhaps those who started practicing in an era where everything was done on paper and then they had to adopt EMR. But it is very, very difficult. And it has really pushed me to think hard about what is good medical care and where and when is it appropriate to implement new technology into medicine? Uh, when, when is its time to come? And so I've been wrestling with those issues quite a bit. And I would say as a whole in my practice, the number one challenge we face is documentation. Yeah, it's just, it's crazy to think that Uh, I I think most people, if they say they're spending any less than half of their day writing notes rather than like actually talking or examining patients, then I think they're, they're probably lying or they're, I don't know, maybe a dermatologist or somebody that's like not, not writing, not writing notes in the sense that we do in internal medicine is it's, it's tough. So was the paper you're talking, is, is that the ACP patients before paperwork paper, or is it a different, is is it a different one that you're talking about from the annals? No, that's the right one that I'm referencing from that was published last year, I think. So what are, what is going to be implemented? Is there, is there anything that's going to be implemented in the near future? I mean, 
just give me some hope that this is going to go away because like every time, you know, you write your notes and you're getting, there's, there's all these little things we do just to make sure that the note is, is, is compensating us for our time, even though we know that like, it takes a lot of time to put all those things into the note and it's not directly helping the patient. It's, it's only helping the reimbursement. Is any of this going to go away or get better? Well, I think that our community of internists, along with several other medical specialties, have done a good job communicating to policymakers that we're not on a sustainable course in terms of how much time we're spending documenting versus actually taking care of patients. Uh, MD doesn't stand for medical documenter, right? Um, It's medical doctor. So... There is a, and we can pivot a little bit to the proposal from the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, which speaks to that general sentiment. Uh, They have come up with a proposal that simplifies, we don't know the details yet, all of the things that we have to write in the note. But the trade-off for that is you're not necessarily rewarded for seeing or compensated appropriately, I shouldn't use the word reward, for seeing more complex patients. So they're saying, well, here's the deal we'll we'll give you. If you don't want to have to stress so much about what you write in the note and worry about the audit that may come from the insurance company, that's fine. But in exchange, we're just going to pay you more or less a flat rate for the patients that you see. And not everyone's willing to accept it in that form. Right. So I'll I'll read this and and Fatima, I want you to weigh in on this as well. So there was, uh, there was uh, recently, so this, this is going to come out a little bit in in a couple weeks here, but this was, this was a recent statement put out by the American College of Physicians. It basically said proposed changes to payments for evaluation and management codes do not appropriately recognize the value of cognitive care required to treat complex patients and the proposal should not be implemented, says the American College of Physicians. And that was a, I guess, a statement they, they put out in the news in the past few weeks here. So Fatima, what did you think of this statement put out by the ACP and and about this idea for this sort of flat payment system where I think it was all the codes between like the 992212. I it's been a while since I've coded outpatient notes, but the all the outpatient notes were essentially going to be billed at the same rate. So what did you think of that and and the ACP statement? Yeah, I think For our purposes, it's especially good to think about things in sort of a bigger picture perspective of what ACP is doing um, and working on in terms of the nitty gritty to improve things. But from a bigger picture perspective, what ACP says is that um, things aren't going far enough um, to reduce administrative burden for for, uh, for, for physicians and that... um, you know, there are some improvements to, to, to MIPS that they're suggesting, but they're, they're not necessarily the, the finalizing an opt-in option um, excludes people who see maybe a lower volume and it's not working as, as well um, uh, from a bigger picture perspective. So I think like what I would say is that things aren't going far enough and the organizations like ACP that are working on those things are wanting um, CMS to go further. I think deep, maybe you can speak a little bit about um, sort of what this means from a, a practitioner's point of view. 
Um, and also one of the things kind of leading off of this I wanted to talk to you about was, you know, you, you know that the burdens exist, and I think that that's not a question to anyone, but how do you feel as a physician in the beginning of your career? Like, what can you do, and who is out there looking for you, looking out for you, if anyone? Sure. Well, I, I think on the one hand, I'm actually really impressed that CMS has decided to tackle this issue fairly early into administrator Verma's term. Uh, I think it's there's been growing concern about the sustainability, particularly in the outpatient community, as, as well as, of course, inpatient, about how long we can continue building upon this culture of documenting things that have no clinical relevance. And so I'm very hopeful that this does turn in to a proposal that does meaningfully reduce the administrative requirements that are on us right now. However, tying it to complexity of care would not have been my preferred way to approach the problem. I think there's a baseline expectation for documentation that is too high for the average level three visit. And that probably needs to be reset first. And the second is recognizing that simply character count doesn't carry any clinical significance. Uh, which I think should really be a starting point for how we evaluate it. I want to CMA. Oh, deep. I was going to, what I was going to say is I think we should just assume complete ignorance on the part of me and the audience and just, just say uh, in case some of the audience, I think most of the audience knows a little bit about billing and coding, but what, what we're talking about here is there's levels of visit based on, patient complexity and there's a whole bunch of factors that go into it and essentially the more you write the more you say you did the more you get paid but what what this is kind of talking about is like there would just be you wouldn't have to worry about that anymore because you'd get paid the same no matter how much you document and uh so so it since we're internists and we tend to see these really complex patients with multimorbidity we might we might feel that we're, our care is being undervalued um, because we might be seeing less patients with higher complexity. Um, so I just wanted to, am I following correctly? Is that sort of a, a decent summary of what we're talking about? Absolutely. I think that's a terrific way to encapsulate the problem that we're wrestling with right now. You're the quarterback of your patient's care when you're a, a primary care physician, and, and that takes time depending on the complexity of the case. If you have a patient who walks in who's got multiple uncontrolled conditions, let's say it's a heart failure patient who's also got COPD, uh, as well as perhaps one or two other things. You know, we can do the trifecta uh, and add diabetes to it. Uh, That visit requires a certain amount of thinking that probably is going to take more time and deserves somewhat more documentation than a simple cough or cold that walks through the door. Right now, the amount of documentation required for both of those patients is disproportionate 
to what's actually required to clinically reason through those cases. However, we would all agree, I think, that there needs to be some difference in the compensation for taking care of that very complex patient versus a simple one. So how do we reconcile those, those two issues? Because I think the last thing we would want is for a busy doctor to say, uh, you know, I'm not going to see that complex patient because it pays the same as this cough or cold. And as it is, my practice is, is barely going. And I just don't have the time, particularly if the insurance company is not going to appropriately compensate me for it. So that's the, the real fear that we all have, that it, it would inadvertently cause an access problem to a really great caring doctor who just couldn't afford to continue taking care of that complex patient in this, this new proposed payer scheme. And Deep, can you talk a little bit about... Um, and sort of kind of, again, in the interest of making things as basic as possible for someone, for a listener who may not know as much, is what CMS addressing specifically for patients on Medicare and Medicaid, and do the same rules apply to your patients who may have other private insurance companies? Are the rules different with billing and coding and documentation across the board, or are they same across the board? Just sort of so people understand what it's like to actually practice. What a fantastic question that often seems obvious, but is not always. So when you're in residency, and when I was in residency, I never even looked at the insurance of a patient. And in practice, I often don't either. But some patients are on an insurance that's subsidized by the government, whether it's the state government, those programs are called Medicaid programs, um, which also receive some federal funding, or they're on federal insurance. And there's actually more than one federal insurance. There's Medicare, and then there's several military insurances as well. So the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services administers all of those government programs at some level. And historically, when we look back uh, at the anthology of health policy from the very beginning um, to when Medicare was first created back in the 1960s. Uh, what Medicare does, private insurances seem to mimic down the road. It may take a few years, but they usually start implementing very, very similar policies. So we look at Medicare and its decisions as heralding the future of health policy in America. We've all probably heard of Blue Cross Blue Shield, Cigna, Aetna. Those are other big private insurance companies that are for-profit or in some states not for-profit, but they're privately held. So I, what I wanted to follow up with is you you mentioned that you, you didn't think it was a good idea to tie complexity of care um, to this, this payment issue. Is there a, a better way that you think we can tackle this or is there some solution that you think will be reached maybe if you just had to predict the future? I know that's a tough question. Sure. Well, I think that something's going to have to change because it's unsustainable the way it is right now. And even if we look at it with the best possible lens, which is that this documentation is valuable, uh, nobody has the time to read it on the receiving end as a specialist to whom I refer my patients to. So even if the information we're putting in is very good quality, which I think most doctors try to do, 
but they don't always have time to. It's not being used for the intended purpose. It's being used to satisfy uh, insurance company requirements, which is not how we should be spending our time as doctors. Uh, so I definitely think there's going to have to be a compromise reached uh, on this issue. We want to attract the best and brightest people into the ranks of the medical profession. I'd love for them all to become primary care doctors because I think that at the end of the day, primary care is king and that's how you really uh, manage health in a community. But regardless of what field they go into, if their role models and the people they're looking up to are spending 30 minutes of every hour sitting in front of a computer instead of a patient, it's not necessarily going to create that kind of warm, rewarding atmosphere that all of us envisioned when we decided to go into the field. And it also spurs things like early retirement, reduced work hours. All of those are going to exacerbate a bigger problem, which is we don't have enough doctors to take care of all the patients that we have right now, much less the patients that are going to be coming into our practices as our parents retire and baby boomers enter um, their golden years. Um, one thing, um, Deep, I wanted to talk to you about sort of going off of this as well was sort of on health innovation and new ways to practice medicine within the confines of the system that exists today. And what you're saying is that the system that exists today is not sustainable for the continued practice of medicine in the best interest of patients or providers. Um, and so I'm seeing a lot of things right now of sort of easier innovations, different healthcare startups that are trying to um, practice medicine in a more efficient way where all of the players are being used to the best of their ability. So this is a question I get asked a lot. And as someone who has is actually practicing medicine, um, right now, uh, practicing primary care, is a solution as easy as having a scribe? And do you have, do, do um, physicians have the money to do that? Or is it much more complex than that? Another great question. And I wish I had the answer. Uh, there are several opportunities to, what I would say, compensate for the problem, which is the problem that we've all been talking about for the past few minutes, which is it's really, really hard to keep up with all this documentation requirement. Innovation in healthcare is a hot place right now for a lot of us to spend our time and energy because we're dealing with a system that feels antiquated uh, compared to other systems. EMR, for example, which are electronic medical records, which were the only things I ever used as a medical student or a resident were really exciting when they came in uh, to the medical profession because we felt like we were catching up. Um, you do your banking online. You do all your other communication and a lot of your social interaction online as well. Why shouldn't we be able to uh, take care of patients taking advantage of all this great technology? But one of the problems I see is oftentimes we push things into clinical practice as a requirement uh, before they've really been tested as increasing productivity and improving efficiency um, rather than doing the opposite, which is what you hear a lot of doctors saying EMR has done. It's decreased your productivity. It's made them more inefficient. It also has a trickle-down effect uh, on staff causing burnout at those levels as well. So 
I'm all for innovation, but I think that as policymakers, uh, they carry um, a very important responsibility to make sure that when they do want providers to try something new, it's presented as you suggested an opt-in policy or a trial um, that doesn't come with a penalty if it's not done in the way that it may have been envisioned. Does that answer the question, Fatima? Yeah, absolutely. I think that that makes um, that makes a lot of sense. And sort of in the interest of time, I think we've done a good job sort of covering the practice of medicine and what administrative burdens are. Can you give us an update on uh, the Affordable Care Act? You know, this time last year, I did a, sh- a, a talk with the curbsiders on repeal and replace and what that meant. Where are things now and what does it mean to you as someone who's practicing primary care medicine? Well, I think the ACA uh, is here to stay. So I, whether you're for or against it, I don't think that there's much uh, anticipation of there being a major change at this point. Uh, there are still several states that have not accepted Medicaid expansion which I think is probably one of the biggest lingering issues. It's been adopted in, I think, 34 states, um, and there's 17 that haven't adopted. And in each of those states, uh, including D.C., so 51, um, there is a movement to accept Medicaid funds from the federal government in some way. And just to take a step back, one big part of the Affordable Care Act was to try to cover everyone in every state. And that was done in a number of different ways. Part of that plan was to give states some funding uh, to expand their existing Medicaid programs. In a few states, the governors rejected those funds, uh, citing concerns about the sustainability of the cost and eventually some of the burden coming on to state taxpayers. Uh, so that was the, the reasoning that was given for rejecting the funds. So in Georgia, for example, where I practice, every year in the assembly, there's a big push uh, or there's, there's a planned big push to accept Medicaid. But so far, it hasn't happened here yet. And I'm not sure that it will. It really depends on what happens um, and who's controlling the assembly and the governor. And are they both parties friendly to Medicaid expansion? So I think that's uh, probably... Th- the most outstanding question here is what's going to happen with the Medicaid expansion. How is that? Uh, this is a, so I'll, I'll speak from the, the point of ignorance here. How for states, what happened in the states that did not adopt this Medicaid expansion? What's happening to those? How did the, how do those states differ from the ones that did? Because there's still Medicaid in those states, right? It's just, they just didn't expand it to a larger group of patients. Correct. Uh, they didn't accept some funding to make it available to more poor patients. Um, uh, the poor, so the poor still have access, um, but there was funding offered to make it a little more liberal um, as to who could enroll in Medicare in terms of what your income level was. But there is some improvement in the uninsured rates in those states through the healthcare exchanges that are still administered and run by the federal government in those states. Um, I think nationally, the rate of the uninsured dropped from 16 to around 10.5 um, in 2016. 
Uh, I think that's still accurate. I'm not sure in 2017 figures. But uh, in the states where Medicaid wasn't expanded, if you didn't qualify for a subsidy on the federal exchanges or the subsidy wasn't enough, the cost of getting insurance was just still too high. Um, so that's why there's still a large uninsured population in, in some states. In Georgia, we're still above, I think, 12, 13, 14%. Can you talk about, let's take Georgia as an example. They didn't adopt the Medicaid expansion. So what what is the insurance situation like for patients who aren't getting Medicare or Medicaid? Sure. So from 2013, most of my uh, data comes from uh, Kaiser Family Foundation. So um, that's where I would look, I think, if you're interested in these in, uh, topics. And also uh, the Commonwealth Fund has quite a bit as well. Um, so in Georgia right now, if you want to get insurance and you don't qualify for either of those, you can either get it through a job, through an employer, uh, and how much you have to contribute depends on your job, or you can go to a healthcare exchange, uh, which is part of the law. Um, some people call them Obamacare exchanges. And on those, you can get a subsidy to buy private health insurance from the federal government if you qualify. A final option is to go to a community health center. Uh, so those are sort of the main ways people get it. And of course, you can always see um, any doctor if you're, if you're able to pay out of pocket, but that can often be prohibitively expensive. Those exchanges have been really, really important where um, I practice. But if you don't qualify for one of those, uh, you're really left with the FQHCs, the community health centers, or just going out of pocket. Health insurance is a very, very expensive enterprise in the United States. So even people with insurance often still have to pay a ton of money out of pocket to get the care that they need and want. Uh, those are often called deductibles. We hate to think and talk so much about uh, the cost of care, but it's such an important part of patients' daily lives. In residency, I can count on my hand the number of times I talk to patients about the cost of care. But in my daily clinical practice now, taking care of a true middle-class population, I talk to almost every patient about the cost of the testing that I order because out-of-pocket is a big part of every insurance plan. We we just talked with Kate Clancy last month about the cost of care and sort of coaching patients in this. What resource are you using to to let them know the cost of care, or how do you know what it's going to cost your patient when you're ordering a test? Another great question, and we talk a lot about in the health policy community about how opaque or the lack of transparency in healthcare pricing, how difficult it is to figure it out. We're really lucky in our practice that we have a great staff who works very hard to contact the insurance companies, look online, and do a bunch of math for the patient to estimate how much things will cost. But sometimes it's really, really difficult to figure out. There has been a lot of innovation in the space of trying to make healthcare pricing more transparent, but we haven't achieved any great technology solutions yet. And I'm hoping and waiting for the day when that's readily available. I think one of the things that all of us uh, really value is good RX, 
which is tells us drug pricing if you buy medicines outside of insurance. And probably that's the best example we have of complete pricing transparency, but it's the only one out there at this time. Great. Thank you. We're out of time for this recording, and we're definitely going to do more of these shows. So, Deep, what I wanted to ask you is if you could give us a uh, it's just a couple take-home points uh, or just words of wisdom that you wanted to leave the audience with. And uh, let's let's try to keep it, uh, you know, uplifting so we're not <laughs> not ending on a down note. Absolutely. I am grateful every day that I decided to be a primary care doctor. Uh, I love taking care of patients, working with families, but I also love being a point person for healthcare in my community. And I think that being a primary care physician and having a medical degree and specialty training in that, I do think there is a special training required to be a primary care doctor. And it makes you an extremely versatile professional um, that there are limitless opportunities to affect change. And all the things you hear about uh, being a doctor, the good and the bad, there's something to be said for all the advice that you get. But at the end of the day, I think most of us envision being the town doc that everyone knows and loves. And when you walk around town, you see your patients, you see their families. And it's a really special privilege to be practicing primary care where I grew up. And what I would say is, I think if you look back over the past 30, 40 years, healthcare continues to get better for the most part. Uh, other than some of the challenges that we have that are very significant right now with the cost of care and access to a lot of the population, the actual profession of being a doctor continues to be rewarding, joyful, and exhilarating literally every day. I can't think of any other career where you could get this kind of variety um, in every moment of every day. And I am a huge advocate of the field and the profession, and I'm also really grateful for ACP um, as a home for all of us to come to as we try to make the profession even more welcoming and appealing for, for future physicians. So for any medical student, pre-med student, or current internal medicine or family resident, you're welcome to come visit me in Atlanta anytime and see what it's like uh, to practice real primary care. And I always thought I'd live in DC uh, and, and work in health policy. I still have my, my hand in it, but I wouldn't trade what I do right now um, for the world. Well, thank you so much. I think those were great words to end on. And um, I'll let you know when this comes out, which should be in a couple weeks time here. Great. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. You can get show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast, or you can sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food. Also, we want your feedback, so please send us an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. You can recommend a future topic or tell us what you love or hate about the show. And you can always find us on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter at The Curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto, all alone. Thank you to Dr. Fatima Sayed for helping to write and produce this episode. 
and to our social media team, Hannah R. Abrams is on Twitter, Beth Garbs Garbatelli is on Instagram, and Chris the Chew Man Chew is on Facebook. 